Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Dot edu slash podcast. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I welcome musician Annie Clark, otherwise known as St. Vincent. Plus, we'll review the much-anticipated new album from Maxwell, and then it's Greg's turn to pop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new Octave Air speaker system, a wireless 80-watt wall of sound for your iPod. Details available at alltechlansing.com. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Yes, indeed. Two large entities on the Internet have come together for an agreement after a two-year negotiation. That is uh, webcasters who, as you may remember, in 2007 were faced with paying fees for playing songs, fees that were considered so onerous that most of these webcasters believe they would be put out of business. The other party in this is the royalty collection agency Sound Exchange. And at that time, basically they said that artists needed to be paid, and the only way to do this was to start charging a fee per song played on Internet radio. Well, for the last two years they've been negotiating what this rate will be. The rate has come down sufficiently to the point where now webcasters are saying, you know what, we can live with this. Tim Westergren, the founder of Pandora, which is one of the largest webcasters to the tune of about $40 million a year in revenue, said this is definitely the agreement that we've been waiting for. Now, the upshot of this is that some webcasters may have to start charging some monthly rates for their users in order to access this trove of streaming music. Pandora, for example, is going to start charging some of its customers 99 cents a month after 40 hours of free listening per month, or is now offering a $36 a year subscription fee from nothing. I mean, that that is definitely an increase. It's certainly not a nominal amount. However, it's enough that they feel that their customers are going to stick with them and that these guys will be able to stay in business, which was not the case two years ago when many of these webcasters felt that these rates were so onerous that they would not be able to stay in business. It's all part, Greg, of the bigger picture of the music industry desperately trying to get any penny it can for the copyrights it holds. There's a similar initiative going on in Congress to get performance rights 
its royalties from terrestrial radio. You know, at present, terrestrial radio, regular old FM or AM radio station plays a song. They pay the songwriting royalty, but not the performance right royalty, which is what made the webcasting initiative seem even more egregious. You know, you're going after these internet radio companies to pay much steeper royalties for every song they play than you were going after old-fashioned radio, when old-fashioned radio, much of it is controlled by two or three giant corporations. Mm -hmm. How come you're not soaking them? Well, now, you know, artists are getting together and trying to get more money out of them as well, all because, uh, you know, revenues are decreasing in terms of how they can collect cash from uh, recorded songs. If you smile with your fear and sorrow, smile and maybe tomorrow, you'll find that life is still worthwhile. If you just up your face with that is Jermaine Jackson, Michael Jackson's older brother, providing the signature moment, I think, of the two-and-a-half-hour televised memorial tribute uh, Tuesday afternoon from Los Angeles when he sang one of his younger brother's uh, favorite songs, Smile, originally written by Charlie Chaplin for a 1936 film. Michael Jackson's favorite song, apparently. Smile, though your heart is aching. Mm-hmm. His brother sang it in tribute. If he was alive, Michael would be smiling Broadly, because he has had two extraordinary weeks on the Billboard albums charts since dying on June 25. The first week was only part of a sales week. He sold some 422,000 albums. In week two, first full week since his death, 800,000 records sold in the United States alone, a 90% increase even on that phenomenal first week. One of the things that's really interesting, Greg, uh, you know, obviously Jackson's death is historical in a lot of ways. It's going to go down as the last great gasp of physical CD Mm -hmm. sales. Sony Columbia was caught unawares in week one, and uh, the download sales in week one after Jackson's death far exceeded physical product, mainly because there wasn't much physical product in stores. Somebody at Sony turned on the switch really quickly after Jackson's death, and they started pumping out those shiny plastic discs. It's going to be the last great production of them ever, because 82% of those 800,000 records were as physical CDs. That's really extraordinary. It is amazing. But it's only appropriate, Jim. I mean, let's face it. This is the guy who ushered in the CD era. You know, Thriller came in just as the CD became... The, the the cash cow for the music industry in, in 1982, and uh, now he's ushering that era out. I'm pretty sure, Greg, that retailers will, will have more good news. We're probably going to see a CD and DVD release of the Memorial Concert uh, on Tuesday, but I'm also really curious about what kind of footage the promoters, AEG, has in the can of what was going to be Jackson's final uh, series of performances, those 50 gigs that were to have started in London next week. You know, they apparently were filming him rehearsing at the Staples Center, where the memorial was held. They apparently have enough to put out a concert DVD. Will we see this? Will it answer the question of whether this guy's talents had eroded as much as his physical being, or was he really poised on the brink of a comeback, as all of his boosters say he was? weeks ago on this show, we told you about this story uh, involving Nine Inch Nails frontman Trent Reznor and his efforts to aid a Nevada heart patient named Eric Dela Cruz, a 27-year-old Nevada resident in desperate need of a heart transplant. The man could not get aid through Nevada Medicaid and private insurance companies. He was unable to fund this operation himself. Reznor reached out to his fans uh, through his Twitter account and through his website, basically offering backstage passes, uh, prime seats to his shows on his current tour in exchange for donations for this very needy person. The cause went over big time, over $800,000 collected. But I think an example 
of how Resner and the Nine Inch Nails community in general are able to respond using modern tools like Twitter in order to help a person in need. So this isn't all about just selling music and selling records and, and merchandise. This is a very worthy cause, and unfortunately, it has a sad ending. Before Eric Dela Cruz could have his operation, he was in such a weakened condition that he was unable to go through the operation, ended up dying at the age of 27. So a sad end to a very noble story that uh, developed over the last couple of months. Greg, we had Trent Reznor on the show a couple of weeks ago. It was a fascinating interview, and part of what he talked about was how he's uh, about to enter this new phase in his musical career. He's putting Nine Inch Nails to rest. They're going to wrap up this tour. He's just added a few special gigs at the end of it in Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles, starting in late August at rather intimate venues, uh, mid-sized theaters of about 4,000 seats each. That's going to be the way Nine Inch Nails comes to an end as a touring entity, and people are going to be lucky if they can get into those shows, because it should be something special. You're a That's a little bit of St. Vincent from her recent album, Actor, one of the best albums of the year so far, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we were very fortunate to have St. Vincent, a.k.a. Annie Clark, in the studio with us recently. Uh, we talked a little bit about everything, most of all uh, her upbringing in the Southwest, her career before she became a solo artist known as St. Vincent, with uh, groups like the Polyphonic Spree and Sufjan Stevens. Then things really took a turn with the 2007 album Marry Me and now Actor in 2009. Greg, Annie Clark came by the Jim and K. Maybe studios here at WBEZ in Chicago and she was joined by her band William Flynn on bass, Daniel Hart on violin, Evan Smith on woodwinds and keyboards, and Anthony LaMarca on drums. Annie, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Uh, let's start with you growing up outside of Dallas and how you spent your summers in your teenage years. Sure. Um, in my teenage years, instead of going to camp, I went to I went on tour with my aunt and uncle, who are a, a jazz duo called Tuck and Patty. And I traveled with them, and um, they will be sweet and say that I tour managed them, but I <laughs> know that it was more like I was a roadie. Obviously, you're a pretty fine guitar player. I mean, were you playing guitar along with your uncle at all or I mean how how did that work out in terms of your personal history as a musician um I think that watching him play show after show after show I just kind of picked up some things some certain techniques I mean he's a just astounding fingerstyle guitar player and uh I didn't sit down and say Uncle Tuck teach me what you know as much as I probably should have I more just kind of watched him in awe and tried mm -hmm. to pick up what I could and obviously there's been a history with you and other bands before you actually started doing your own thing. You've toured with uh, Sufjan Stevens. You've, uh, you've done a stint with Polyphonic Spree. You've played some with Glenn Branca. Talk about Polyphonic Spree first. Yeah, uh, it has to be said. I, I spent some time with the Polyphonic Spree <laughs> going up and down the West Coast in that bus. Whoa. And I mean like 30 people on that bus. Yeah. And it's this weird combination of, of out-of-control Bacchanal and Christian summer camp. Just, just nuts, <laughs> you know, with, with Tim DeLotter's wife as as the mom, the den mother. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what stint you were in, but if you were on that bus, God bless you. <laughs> Thank you. I toured with them in Europe, and um, I think by that point we had two buses for 30 people, so that was 15 <laughs> people per bus, which, yeah. I mean, I was so thrilled to, to even be there that um, I didn't mind that the sort of filth and squalor of, yeah. you know, of touring. <laughs> what did you pick up, though, from uh, the spree, other than... Uh, learning how to live in filth and squalor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that in the best way possible, too. I do. Um, gosh, before I joined the Polyphonic Spree, um, Daniel Hart and I toured a lot in the States, but it was more like um, minivan style and and other brands of filth and squalor that were totally fun and, and, and everything. But then when I played with the Polyphonic Spree, I mean, the first show was from maybe 20,000 people in Spain. And so <laughs> it's just such, it was such a leap in terms of audience energy. And I think that I learned uh, the sort of weird line between a music show and performance art and really what it means to like blood, sweat, and tears for a show. Mm -hmm. 
and there's a heavy theatrical element in their music or, or in their presentation, certainly. And maybe not so much in your live show, but certainly in your music, there seems to be a, a quality to it that has that element. Would you say it's fair to say that some of what they were doing maybe rubbed off on your own music a little bit? Oh, sure. I mean, I think um, I think everything, every music project that I've ever been in or I don't think anything that I've ever heard kind of osmotically makes its way in there somehow. Before we continue the conversation, why don't we have a song? What do you, what do you want to play for us, Annie? We're going to play The Strangers.
That's The Strangers, performed by St. Vincent, live on Sound Opinions. We'll be back with more of St. Vincent after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. And later on, Greg will add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. Back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We've been talking with Annie Clark, who performs under the name St. Vincent. On her new album, Actor, she creates a fantasy world that uh, you can well picture being inhabited by Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. I asked her about these cartoon influences. So, Annie, uh, impossible to be in the middle of that music and not feel like you're in a Disney Fantasia-like cartoon. <laughs> was that was oh, that a, a, a goal uh, going in? Uh, it's so so cinematic. This album, your second album, actor. It was a goal. It was a goal. I um I watched a lot of Disney films, especially Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, and um. What I found when I was watching the films is that I felt like I felt when I first saw them. There mm. was no, um, there was no irony and there was no like jaded uh, hipsterness or anything about it. I was just blown away and just wanted to be in the cartoon like I did when I was <laughs> yeah. little. Yeah. What prompted you to say, okay, I'm going to go out and make an album under my own name, even if it wasn't really under your own name, it was under St. Vincent, but right. Um, well. I had been working on the Marry Me record for a while, actually before I joined the Polyphonic Spree. I pretty much finished it about, you know, the the end of 2006 and, you know, I had been playing in the Polyphonic Spree and that's when um, Sufjan heard the record and asked me to tour with him. And in the process of being on tour with Sufjan, I was signed to, to Beggar's Banquet, mm. you know, based off of a, a, a few shows that one of the label reps saw. So it was all kind of happening symbiotically, but I, I've always wanted to do this. I've always wanted to, to make my own music and tour in vans and mm-hmm. <laughs> tour in buses. And so all that time with uh, with your uncle and your aunt, uh, Tuck and Patty and, and Polyphonic Spree and Sufjan, hadn't turned you off to the wanderlust of crossing America in a smelly van? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, again, like I said, I call it filth and squalor, but I mean it in the best way possible. Like yeah. it's you feel like you're free because you kind of are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've been, you've been asked this a million times, but uh, St. Vincent, any particular <laughs> reason for calling it St. Vincent as opposed to the Annie Clark experience or something like that? <laughs> um, the Annie Clarkestra, maybe. <laughs> that, I think that was taken, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I well, it's a family name, and I thought it was a nice way to honor 
where I've come from, but also I think that there's something powerful in naming what you do something else, because at least in my mind, it gives me the creative space to feel like I can do whatever I want. Well, there is a sense often on this record that you're playing a role, something like The Bed, you know, where all of a sudden we see a really dark side of Annie Clark, or at least you're inhabited by something dark for a moment when you're talking about uh, being under the bed with a Smith & Wesson. We're sleeping underneath the bed To scare the monsters out with our dear daddy Smith feel like an actor? Um, I, I like to think that the record is emotionally true. It's an emotionally true record with characters and with uh, fiction for for words. Mm. Well, and, and I think that there's these beautiful settings and then there's this violence that intrudes <laughs> on the scene. So you seem to like the mix of uh, that beauty and then disrupting it, sort of a subversive quality. Was it just like, oh, this is too pretty. I'm just going to mess this up a little bit. Well, um... I wouldn't say that it wasn't it wasn't super calculated. I think I wanted to do make a record that was less linear for me in terms of songwriting, you know, not a oh, verse chorus, verse chorus, something that felt like it could move any direction. A song could move in any direction that it wanted to. And I think life is kind of like that. I think life is sort of like, you know, oh, you're walking down the street and something's and you're thinking of one thing and then the next thing you know you're transported to the past thinking mm-hmm. of something else or thinking about the future and I, I wanted to kind of try to fuse all of that together. Mm-hmm. Well, you talked about even subverting the songwriting process in a way. Um, didn't you start with the woodwind arrangements? Wasn't that kind of like where it... <laughs> yeah. Sort of backwards, like that's usually the last thing you put on, right? And this was the starting point for you on a lot of these songs, right? It was. I mean, typically, I mean, at least for the Marry Me record, everything started off on guitar and piano and, like, okay, here's the song. And then the arrangement was sort of like the icing that I spent a lot of, t- you know, a lot mm-hmm. of time tinkering with. But on this record... I kind of, I, you know, you kind of get it in your head like, oh, I, I want to be a serious musician. I want to cut, <laughs> cut my teeth on um, on film score and I want to do this and I want to do that. And I, so I got really into the idea of arranging and of trying to be a composer. And then I like to think that I kind of failed or at least I like, got <laughs> sidetracked and um, and then was like, oh, no, I like pop songs, too. I want to I want to put these two things together. It was a very esoteric process <laughs> making the record. It was not visceral. This is a lot of you sitting with a laptop playing with computer program, right? Do yes. approximate woodwind arrangements. Exactly. Exactly. Draw literally drawing in notes with my mouse. Wow. Mm-hmm. Piece by piece. Like the song Marrow, for example, I never touched an instrument to write the song. Hmm. I just well, you know, painstakingly drew the tiny little MIDI lines and mm-hmm. and garage band. And at the same time, you uh, you play a lot of instruments. I mean, you brought in your guitar and real bass and flutes and violins and exactly. combination. Exactly, exactly. I feel like the the process of the record was it. I got to see it the music come to life. Mm-hmm. I kept saying to John Congleton, who was um, producing the record, who's just a delight and a dear. I kept saying to him, John, I I like it. I I like it, but I can't touch it. I can't touch it. I don't know. I can't touch this music. You know, because I couldn't play it. I didn't. I mm. had no idea how to how to actually play it on piano or play it on guitar. It was all in the air. Mm -hmm. Well, Annie, you're going to give us another song, right? Yes, sir. And tell us how this one started out. Um, This song's called Actor Out of Work. And actually, this is the only song, I think it's the most immediate song on the record, and it's the only song that I actually wrote on guitar in a day. You're a supplement, you're a salve, you're a bandage, pull it off. I can quit you, cut it out. You're a patient, I am love. 
actor out of work from St. Vincent from the new album called Actor. Annie, big leap, I think, between uh, Marry Me, your debut record in 2007, and this record. Did you have different ambitions for it going in? Um, I did. I had a lot of thoughts of what I, mm-hmm. <laughs> what I wanted to do. But I think it sort of got whittled down to um, I wanted to take the parts of Marry Me that I thought were beautiful and expound on it and make it more beautiful and make it more like... I, I use the word so much, but the word magic, like make make it whimsical and innocent. The, the quote I love, Annie, was the, you, you wanted a Technicolor animatronic ride. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Did what I that say means, that? but it sounds great. That's exactly what I wanted. But, you know, that sounds so precious. And um, the one thing I really like about this record is it's got that drive. There's some bottom to this record as well. Yeah, good. I'm glad. Um the sort of gnarly guitar and the drums really laying down grooves. I mean, I think that's actually the thing that takes the record from being pretty esoteric to um, to pretty listenable. You can listen to anything with a groove under it. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you can say anything. You can make the arrangements above as floral and, and silly as you want if you've got, like, some kind of steady groove just laying it down. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, how about another song then? Great. What are we going to hear? Uh, we're going to play The Party.
Absolutely gorgeous stuff. Technicolor animatronic ride, <laughs> indeed. St. Vincent. Annie Clark, thank you so much for bringing the band by. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. To listen to St. Vincent's entire live performance, visit soundopinions.org. And a comment on our conversation or to share any of your critical opinions on the air, give us a call on our hotline. That's 888-859-1800. We're going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new album by soul singer Maxwell. These days I seem to think a lot about the things that I forgot to do. Support for Sound Opinions is provided by founding sponsor Alltech Lansing and their new Octave Air speaker system, a wireless 80-watt wall of sound for your iPod. Details available at alltechlansing.com. Time will bring the real end of our trial. But day there'll be no remnants, no trace, no residual. Feel lands within you Then you won't remember man. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called Pretty Wings from the new album Black Summer's Night by Maxwell on Sound Opinions. Uh, Black Summer's Night with the black all in caps run together with the Summer's Night. I make that point, Greg, because uh, Maxwell has said he is going to give us a trilogy of recordings mm. in the next coming months, uh, all named Black Summer's Nights, but, but, but with different parts of that capitalized. That sounds confusing. Let's get to the simple part. Maxwell is a Brooklyn-born singer and songwriter who was a key part of that so-called neo-soul or natural R&B movement of the early to mid-90s. I think that what these artists were doing, people like Lauryn Hill and D'Angelo and Jill Scott and Erica Badu and Maxwell, was similar to what the alternative rockers were doing, getting rid of a lot of the gloss, taking things back to the roots. You know, R&B had become all about that Bobby Brown and later the R. Kelly big, super-polished production thing. They wanted to emulate Marvin Gaye and go back to flesh and blood, sweating musicians and singing about political consciousness and respect for each other. Certainly, it was hot and heavy romance, as all good soul music is, but it was with more respect for women and not just about bumping and grinding. Interesting to know, you know, Lauryn Hill, D'Angelo, Maxwell, all of them in their 20s as they became stars, suddenly had this mid-career crisis around age 30 and disappeared for most of the last decade. Maxwell has not made a new album in eight or nine years since Now came out in 2001. Uh, What was he doing? He was traveling the world, living, he says, as a regular person, and he fell in and out of love. That relationship, apparently the uh, the most serious of his life, fuels much of the lyrical content of Black Summer's Night, which he recorded with a guitarist, Todd David, who played on his last record, and a lot of great studio musicians, kind of eschewing all that digital tomfoolery, no auto-tune on this record, very much back in that neo-soul groove. We'll give our thoughts on what's in those grooves in a minute. First, let's hear a track from Black Summer's Night by Maxwell. This is called Love You on Sound Opinions. Tell me who's gonna 
Love You from Maxwell, the new album Black Summer's Night, his fourth album, first in nearly a decade. Uh, where's this guy been, Jim? As you said, uh, you know, I like the fact that where some people in the commercial side of the industry may say, well, what are these guys doing? They're sabotaging their careers. I like the fact that with Maxwell, you definitely get a sense it's not about keeping up with the trends. In fact, there are no, there's nothing trendy about this record at all. These horn charts are straight out of the 70s. No auto-tune, no hip producers. David Hodd, who's he? He's Maxwell's guitar player. He's not Timbaland. He's not some hot name out there like Will I Am producing this record. This record does not sound like any other R&B record released this year. And in fact, I think when we talk about these artists coming back, the D'Angelo's and the Erica Badu's and now Maxwell, they're making records that are kind of in the, uh, if their earlier records were kind of hearkening back to the pop phase of, of that Motown, Stax, Soul era of the late 60s, early 70s, now they're in the late 70s phase where that those records got a lot artier. I'm thinking about late 70s Marvin Gaye when mm-hmm. he was making those really idiosyncratic art funk records that really didn't do a lot on the charts, but I think have been listened to very attentively by generations of subsequent artists, and I think Maxwell has been paying attention to them as well. There's a little bit more grit in this record than I'm used to hearing from Maxwell. It used to be very creamy, high-end kind of falsetto. There's more bottom here. I love the arrangements on the on the horns. And uh, although the hooks aren't in abundance, I think this is one of those records like Erica Badu's 2008 release, New America Part 1, where I think the more you listen to it, the more you get out of it. For me, on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, this is a buy it record all the way. I wish I could be as enthusiastic as you, Greg. I think it is uh, simply a burn it record. I wanted more from Maxwell. I don't think it's nearly as good as that Erica Badu record from last year. There are some high points, to be sure. Pretty Wings, a beautiful song. But then there's just a lot of real sleepiness, you know? Uh, a lot of acoustic guitar, that song playing Possum, that opening ballad, uh, Bad Habits. Yeah, this is the highest cost. Take you and make you off. Left you and leave you lost. Will you forgive me? It's kind of like background music. You know, I wish the guy had come back with a little more fire. He sees this grand arc of three albums, one of which is going to be apparently more dance-oriented, one of which is going to be more gospel-oriented. I kind of wish he'd taken the best of all three of those and put Mm. them together because I think he might have had something. As it is, we're going to have to wait, I think, and, and, and I'll go with the burn it. You gave it a buy it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox and talk about a song we can't live without today. Mr. Cott, it's your turn. Thank you, Jim. Thinking about Maxwell and thinking about that uh, 70s era of soul music uh, prompted me to come up with this selection today. I think it was a really interesting era for R&B. More personal, idiosyncratic records were being made by people like uh, Curtis Mayfield and Marvin Gaye, the Isley Brothers, Stevie Wonder, Parliament Funkadelic, and this group, Hot Chocolate. Mm. Uh, I think they sort of stood outside that in a lot of ways because they were an interracial British quintet. They weren't from America, but they were heavily influenced by what was going on there. When people think of this group, they probably think of one song. They had a big hit with a, a song called You Sexy Thing. Yeah. And I think it kind I of... I believe in miracles. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It really doesn't do justice, though, to some of the other stuff that they were doing, which was really deep and dark. They had this uh, 1974 debut album called Cicero Park that was almost completely ignored when it was initially released, but later on produced some songs that became huge hits, including one called Brother Louie that was about this interracial romance that was later a big hit for a band called The Stories in America, although they watered it down quite a bit. But the, the point being that this band was really good at, at telling these sort of unconventional stories, uh, in particular the singer in the band Errol Brown, who was born in Jamaica and came out of that mento and ska and reggae tradition where the story behind the song was a really important element. And he, and he developed this narrative songwriting style that was really compelling. 
So Errol Brown, the singer in this interracial band that was combining soul and rock and funk and making these really kind of weird records that didn't fit into any kind of category, hit his peak with a song on that debut album, I think, called Emma. It's a song that was later covered by Sisters of Mercy and Urge Overkill, of all things, you know? Non-soul bands, but bands who really appreciated the storytelling element and almost the gothic kind of appeal of this song. He's basically talking about this love affair that ends in a suicide. Not exactly the kind of thing you wanted to talk about if you wanted to get a hit record in 1974, but they addressed it in really poignant, dramatic fashion on this record. Uh, Great vocal performance by uh, the singer Errol Brown, and uh, the production by Mickey Most, uh, one of the icons of British rock in the 60s when he was producing records for people like Donovan, Jeff Beck, The Animals. He loved, loved this group, Hot Chocolate, and worked with them in the early part of their career, producing this song for them as well. Uh, It's Hot Chocolate with Emma from 1974 on Sound Opinions. We were together since we were five. She was so pretty, Emma was a star in everyone's eyes. And when she said she'd be a movie queen, nobody laughed. A face like an angel, she could be anything. Emma Bean, Emma, Emma Bean, I'm gonna write your name high on that silver screen. Emmeline, Emma, Emmeline. I'm gonna make you the biggest star this world has ever seen At 17, we were wed I'd work day and night to earn our daily bread And every day Emma would go out searching for that play That never ever came her way You know sometimes she'd come home so depressed I'd hear her crying in the back room feel so distressed And I'd remember back when she was five to the words that used to make Emmeline come alive It was Emmeline Emma, Emmeline I'm gonna write your name high on that silver screen. Emily, Emma, Emily, I'm gonna make you the biggest star this world has ever seen. Cod pulling one out of the uh, of the velvet lined basket, man. Then going going deep, hot chocolate with Emma, a great desert island jukebox pick. What do we have on the show next week, Mister Cod? Jim, it is that time of year again. Uh, six months into 2009, it's time to pick our favorite records of the year so far. As always, Sound Opinions this week was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. Mary Gaffney recorded Saint Vincent for us, and fearless leadership. And executive production was provided by the one and only Tori Southside Malatia, our own personal animatronic Technicolor ride. Operator, can you help me? Help me if you please. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. That I need. New messages. Hi, this is Nick Mason from uh, Musty, Indiana. I just listened to your driving show. I thought it was awesome. You stole two of my songs, Hollow Gallo by Noi, which is one of the best 
driving songs of all time, and Roadrunner, of course. But uh, you guys failed to mention one of the most important ones, that's being Foggy Notion by the Velvet Underground. I used to be a driver for Domino's here in Muncie, and uh, I'd make runs out to the uh, Sally May College Loan. They'd order pizza all the time, and lo and behold, the name of the company itself is in the song. It took me seven minutes to get there. The song's seven minutes long. I'm so sad that you guys didn't talk about it, but it's probably because you guys are such big Velvet Underground fans in the first place that it didn't even need to be mentioned. So I'm going to mention it for you. Foggy Notion by the Velvet Underground, one of the top five all-time driving songs. Take care. Bye. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Joe Foster from Tulsa, Oklahoma. I really love the show on the favorite driving songs, and I'm really, really happy that Greg mentioned Queens of Stone Age regular John. I'm a big fan of Queens of Stone Age, but I do not have a stereo in my car, and the only thing I have to listen to when I'm in a work truck is a Caius record, and I think one of the best Caius songs for driving is 50 Million Year Trip. It is a great desert sounding song. Love the podcast. Love you guys. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is uh, Jim Niven calling from Hillsboro, North Carolina. Uh, me and my, my two young sons drive quite a bit. We have three songs that we usually start our road trips off with. Uh, the first one is Blitz Creek Bop by the Ramones, which, you know, the hey-ho, let's go is an obvious starter. Ace of Spades by Motorhead, which uh, is one of their favorite songs. But uh, the other one that they really seem to like is uh, Planet Claire by the B-52s. Just that kind of slow build of a groove has become a family favorite as of now. So we motor to that more than anything. Uh, good job on the show. Loved all the picks. Thanks. Greg and Jen, this is Craig from Gainesville, Florida. I just finished listening to the Driving Tunes podcast on the way to work this morning, and I was dumbfounded that you had a discussion with Driving Tunes without Radar Love, possibly the greatest driving song of all time. Thank you. Bye-bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.